Welcome to episode 5 of the Movies of 1999, a podcast where we watch movies from 1999 as selected by a bingo machine. My name is Jason Hutchins. <laughs> and I'm Craig Talbot. And in this week we are going to be talking about The Cider House Rules and Mansfield Park, which are the two movies that we watched last week. And at the end of today's episode we'll be crossing live to this week's movie night to find out which movies we'll be talking about in next week's episode. But for now, let's jump right into The Cider House Rules. The Cider House Rules is a film adaptation of John Irving's novel directed by Lesse Hellstrom that explores themes of love, individual choice and the complexities of moral decisions. Set during World War II, it follows the life of Homer Wells, an orphan who grows up in a main orphanage under the care of Dr. Wilbur Larch, an obstetrician and abortionist. Despite Larch's hopes that Homer will inherit his medical practice, Homer yearns for a life beyond the orphanage walls. He leaves with a couple, Candy and Wally, to work in an apple orchard where he confronts love, friendship and moral dilemmas that challenge his views on life and his own desires. The film delicately navigates through Homer's journey of self-discovery, his struggle with ethical principles and his quest to find where he truly belongs. So Craig, what did you think of The Cider House Rules? I think I said on the movie night, uh, despite my protestations, which I noticed you left in the podcast yes, last week when the ball dropped, I actually enjoyed The Cider House Rules. I think I said it was the best movie we had watched so far. Mm. And I, know, I think it um, certainly has a lot to recommend it. Certainly, uh, if you look at the number of awards that it won, it's the first one of our movies to have won more than one Academy Award. It was Best Supporting Actor and Best Screenplay or something like that? Yes, Best Screenplay for John Irving and Michael Caine won his award for Best Supporting Actor, which I found interesting. It was nominated for Best Picture, which I think might be the first time we've got a movie that's been nominated Mm. for Best Picture. It was, um, and it got 30 nominations for a whole bunch of different uh, awards in total, and it won eight out of those. So it's obviously a highly regarded movie. Like you said uh, at the end of the podcast last week, it was such a contrast to have these period dramas after we've done animations, we've done horror movies, and, and it really feels like we're changing gears a bit. Yeah, we have certainly changed gears with these two movies. These are very, very different. And I look, I think uh, probably this week I would say you've done your best job of matching two movies together. Ah, okay. Uh, I think they're both, they actually both are compatible with each other. They're very different period dramas, uh, one set in America in the 1940s and one set in the 1800s in the world of Jane Austen. But nonetheless, I think they do fit together rather well. They're both romantic, clever movies. And I think one of the things that I found interesting about them as well is they both had a serious side to them, which we can discuss later, I guess. It's also very interesting that we've had a lot of movies based in northwestern USA. So, yeah, that's <laughs> so the Cider House intense, Rules is based in yeah. Maine. I think yes. John Irving's New Hampshire, isn't he? And, you know, the American yeah. movie, The Iron, the Iron Giant. The Iron was in the northwestern of Europe. A Simple um, Plan. Your, our good friend Will, who I hope he doesn't mind us mentioning him on the podcast, has got a theory that you've deliberately designed this so that they're all in the northwest of the USA. 
It's a, it's a theory that he currently has, I believe. That's what well, we talked did, about on the movie. It makes sense <laughs> after the five weeks so far, but um, we'll see yeah, where it we goes. Are, we are starting to form a suspicion that you are obsessed <laughs> with that part of the world. It's just yeah. very coincidental. Our mate Sam Raimi comes up in this conversation today. I, I might just jump to this little factoid, yeah, if that's all right. Talk, talking about um, a simple plan, yeah, he directed that. Yeah, so Sam Raimi actually decided to use Tobey Maguire for Peter Parker in the role of Spider-Man in the 2002 version of Spider-Man, which is probably what Tobey Maguire is the most famous for, I suspect. Yeah, uh, I think so. Other than, other than this movie. Um, he So Sam Raimi uh, tapped Tobey Maguire on the shoulder for this one. So he saw Tobey Maguire in this movie. And thought yeah. he'd make a good Spider-Man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, well, probably because of his relationship with Charlize Theron and mm. the, the relationship with I've forgotten who the girl is in Spider-Man, but it's a pretty important relationship as well. Yeah, it's interesting. In There's movie. a lot of actors who have been in superhero movies starred in, in A Side of House Rules, didn't they? So, yeah, yeah. So you can sort true. of see the beginnings of it because there's also J.K. Simmons, the lobster man, even in a fairly small role, but he was also in the Spider-Man movies. So Sam Raimi must have been looking at everybody in A Side yeah, of House he Rules. Yeah, he obviously really enjoyed this movie. It's interesting, though, Side House Rules only gets a 71% overall score on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. And 77% from the audience score, which is interesting because the next movie that we're going to talk about actually scores on average higher. It ended up on the poor old B list because... It wasn't your kind of movie. That's exactly but, right. Um, not, not my kind of movie and not really representative of 99 either, I didn't think. So the members of the Academy clearly liked this movie because it got nominated for eight awards and it received a whole bunch of nominations for other critics' awards and things like that. And yet it's a 71 percenter, which is interesting because this is probably a movie that I knew about just from the name. Yeah. The side of how, like it's a name that I've heard. I. I'm not a John Irving reader. I think you're more of a fan well, of his books. I did claim last week that I've read all his books, but I don't have any memory of reading this one. Like when I watched the movie, it was all new to me. And I went and looked on our bookshelf and I don't have the Cider House rules on the bookshelf. I think maybe I've read about half a dozen John Irving books. They're mostly about wrestling and bears and, and things oh, like okay. that. But I... I started out with The World According to Garp, but I, I certainly read A Prayer for Owen Meany and The Fourth Hand and a bunch of other ones. This story tackles some controversial issues. I mean, it tackles the morality of abortion. It's, it's, mm. it's really like the central theme of the book. And I think that that's something that is very divisive in America. I yes. mean, we see that now with the overturning of Roe versus Wade uh, last year or the year before by the Supreme Court. Yes. And I think that would divide the audience as well. And it's probably why it didn't, like in terms of a Hollywood movie, Hollywood's very sort of left-leaning and, yes. and, and you'd I expect wonder, it to be well-awarded, but maybe the audience, mm -hmm. the wider audience didn't enjoy the film. I wonder if that movie came out now. It, w it would be an almost, uh, you know, it would be very controversial. Like there'd be people yeah, yeah. picketing outside the movie and all sorts. Uh, Homer's journey in this movie is really one of him discovering that morality through his experience in the world. I mean, he comes from a very anti-abortion stance while he's working in the orphanage. But when he goes out into the real world, he changes his opinion. So it's interesting. It's interesting now because actually something came up during the week and they were saying that because of the changes in the US, there have been something like 64,000 pregnancies that probably would not have happened mm. but for all the law changes in the US, which is an enormous number yeah. of eventual people I guess and you wonder like that 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 whole system of the orphanage has disappeared with Roe versus Wade because there are no longer 
anywhere near as many orphans in the US. Wonder what's going to happen now, whether that system will re-emerge. Because oh, right. This. Yes, I see what you mean. Anyway, let's not go too deep into US politics. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> You'd be there a long time. I thought the scenery inside a house rules was probably one of its... Great cinematography. Another one of these... Yeah, then the northwestern US, which we we all know now is somewhere that you love, again is shown to its best in mm. this movie. Certainly with the scenes of the orphanage, which was actually filmed at a abandoned mental asylum in Massachusetts. The cinematography, as you said, is is excellent, and it's a it's a beautiful movie. It was all filmed around that part of the world. They clearly went to a lot of trouble. I think there's one particular scene where they're digging a grave, but it must have been filmed at daybreak, and they've got the rising sun in the background. And that's a lot of effort to go to when you're filming a movie, because that sort of moment where the light is perfect doesn't last for very long. It could only be like 10 or 15 minutes where you've got the rising sun or the setting sun. You've got to get everybody in position. You've you've got to film a couple of takes of that scene and it just looks amazing. Sorry, I believe they call that the golden hour. The golden hour, So in photography, it's called the golden hour and a lot of photographers will literally sit in a spot and wait for the golden hour. Mm. There's a that little period of time when the sun is perfect, the light is perfect. Also filming in snow, it's clearly real snow. You see so much TV, like Game of Thrones, for instance, they've gone and sprayed all this fake snow around the place. But you can yes. really tell where when they're using real snow and all the kids have a snowball fight and so forth. Uh, again, uh, we do have a slight theory that you're slightly obsessed by snow. So but but, but you're right, the movie just looks... <laughs> Fantastic. And I think it contrasts a bit with the second movie that we'll be talking about today, where where I feel they didn't go to the same effort to get some good shots. Do you know Leonardo DiCaprio was nearly in this movie? Mm. Leonardo turned the movie down and recommended Tobey Maguire for this movie. I think the director, Lasse Hellstrom, did My Life, not My Life as a Dog, what was the other one? What's Eating Gilbert Grape, which was a Leonardo movie, so they would have had a relationship. Anyway, Leonardo turned the movie down, recommended Toby for the movie. Mm. And, I mean, obviously, Toby's then won that role of Spider-Man. So I wonder if it is a bit of a turning point in Toby's career because... As a result of the Cider House rules, mm. he then got a whole bunch of extra work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just going to mention about John Irving, if I could. He subsequently wrote two other novels, one called Until I Find You and Last Night in Twisted River, who feature characters that win the 1999 <laughs> Academy Award for Best Adapted mm. Screenplay. So, you know, and he won that for this movie. So it was obviously a big inspiration for him too. He was deeply involved in in this movie. And, you know, what typically happens, you know, when they adapt a book into a movie is that somebody else handles the job, not the original author. And I think having the original author involved means that, like, he obviously has a lot more context about the story that he was trying to tell, even though there might be memorable scenes in the book that another author would want to keep in. You know, he was able to to recognise that those scenes don't belong in the movie because they don't contribute to the core story that he's trying to tell. The core story in this movie is this father-son relationship. Even though they don't have a biological father-son relationship, it very much is a loving relationship in in the spirit of a father-and-son relationship. There's a bit of the prodigal son about this movie in that uh, Tobey Maguire leaves home to go and find himself and then comes back to play the role that his father wanted him to. So 
There's a little bit of that in, in this movie, I feel. Another biblical factoid for you, Jace, just because mm. I'm on a bit of a roll, is that you, re- you remember the line, good night, you princes of Maine, you kings of New England? Yes. Allegedly, that comes from the book of Micah, part of the Bible, which says, O heads of Jacob and ye princes of the house of Israel. It's a pretty good chance that that's where John Irving mm. got that statement from. And both Dr. Larch and Homer Wells use that line they do. in the movie. The um, Cider House rules actually did very well at the box office. It earned $88.5 million mm. at the box office on a budget of $24 million. Did you know that John Irving actually had a cameo in this movie? I did not know that. So um, if you look carefully, uh, when the train uh, arrives, uh, which I was very excited by because, um, you know, you know my predilection for the steam train, the St. Cloud Station Master is actually John Irving. Ah, okay. So he's, he's there playing the Station Master. It's interesting that um, there was that you talked about um, John Irving doing the book sympathetically. Yes, one of his key characters from the mo- the book is not in the movie. Mm. So there's a, a character named Melanie who's not in the movie at all. He apparently cut her out because he didn't want to overshadow the relationship between Homer and Dr. Lark. Uh, she was another so, love interest or something, was she, Melanie? I don't know because I've not read the book, but she's apparently quite key to the book. Mm. But she's not in the in the movie at all. What did you think about the Dr. Larch character? It was a little bit off-putting at the beginning to have Michael Caine playing an American and putting on the accents. But I think that's the skill of Michael Caine mm. in that even though he is very well known and he's very very known for his... English characters with That's strong right. English accents, that he, after a while, I'm willing to bet you probably forgot that it was my Totally, Payne. totally forgot, yes. And I certainly did. I had a little bit of the same reaction to you mm. because he's actually the voiceover at the beginning as well. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's Michael Caine. After a while, you forget that it's Michael Caine and yeah. you, he, he becomes this utterly believable character. Whereas, to be honest... Toby Maguire is always going to be Toby Maguire. <laughs> He's kind of one of those guys. He's very boyish, Toby Maguire, yes. and he has this yes. this way of grinning all the time. He sort of has. Yeah, this he's little... still got this kind of weird grin on his face. Yeah, yeah. yeah he does that in Spider Man as well. Mm. It's kind of off putting. Mm. What did you think of the whole? Like the name of the book is the Cider House Rules, and they kept referring to these Cider House Rules. And it, it sort of seemed to be something that John Irving was trying to say, this is really important. Oh, no, no, I thought it worked quite well because right at the end of the I movie... I didn't really understand. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, you, maybe you can explain it to me. I think right at the end of the movie, they take down the rules um, mm. off the wall and he crumples it up and throws them in the fire. So he's, he's basically throwing the rule book away. And, right. and, and I guess that that was just describing like he'd been living by these rules that he'd imposed upon himself. And when he discarded those rules, he was free to make his own choices. He does make his own choices. He changes his stance, like his moral stance, and then he's able to return to the orphanage and and step into the shoes of his, you know, his father figure. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. I, I, I guess I hadn't thought of it that way. It is a bit of a kind of coming of age moment, isn't it? It is. Um, it is. And, yeah. And just talking about the morality of it, I, th- I thought it was quite interesting that Doctor Larch clearly had a strong moral standpoint when it came to abortion and and things like that. Yes. But even though he had this strong moral stance, he did things that were clearly immoral, I suppose, such as, you know, forging this medical credentials as if Homer had gone through medical school and and so forth. It, he was using ether to get himself to sleep at night. So he was almost like yeah. abusing drugs in a way. 
Um, oh yeah, he was. Yeah, so it's, so he had all of these uh, flaws as a character, like like these moral flaws, yes. but but they they were sort of allowing him to become the person that he was and and to to do the things that he thought that he needed to do to live a a good life, I suppose. Yes, and I think that's where the brilliance of Michael Caine shone through. In those moments, you forgot that it was Michael Caine. Yes. And you only saw Dr. Larch. Mm. He's got that strength about him that allows him to play these highly moral, strong characters. And I think that's probably why he won the Best Supporting Actor mm. for this. Now, Dr. Larch dies. Does he commit mm. suicide? No, I think it was someone who had an addiction who sadly took it a little bit too far. And I don't think you could call it suicide. I think it was an accidental death. He basically has a face mask that he puts drops of ether on to get to sleep. Yes. But then he smashes the bottle of ether against the windowsill. Mm. And then that yes. causes him to OD, I suppose. Yeah. I wasn't sure whether that was deliberate or accidental. I, I saw it more of as an overdose situation and probably a comment on, you know, drug use in general. Mm. No, I didn't, I didn't see it as a suicide. I don't think he was of that mindset. I, I think he was feeling very tired. I mean, it must have been an incredibly stressful uh, and difficult job. And mm. um, these days, you would probably say he needed some psychological assistance and help. But in those days, they they do talk about it. They they were going to get a psychologist to come in. Like the board was recommending that the mm. psychologist would come in. And I'm not sure whether that was for the children or or for yeah for Doctor Larch himself. But we haven't spoken too much of the the other cast. I'm I mean, there's a cast of kids in the orphanage. Yes. There's Kieran Culkin. Um, who I knew from Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I think he's also in succession. There's also the little boy from Malcolm in the Middle who who plays Fuzzy, yes. I think the character is. And he, he he plays a really kind of key role in the movie and he does a very good job, actually. There was a couple of kids. There was the Buster as well, who's like mm. uh, Homer's best friend and he's pretty upset by Homer leaving. Uh, a very young-looking Darlise Theron, I must admit. And I a very young-looking Paul really, Rudd really, as well. A very young-looking Paul Rudd. I thought he did well, though he's only really a small part in the movie, mm. though he's a key character. Um, I thought Mr. Rose was excellent. Mr. Rose oh. is the, uh, Delroy the crew chief. Erica Badu, who plays the character of Rose Rose. Right. Um, she um, she was good as well. Our friend Dave um, pointed out that Erica Badu is also a recording artist, as is Heavy D, who was one of the workers in the orchard. Um, so it was interesting that he immediately recognised uh, these people. There's a little bit of a segue to our next movie because there's this whole relationship between uh, migrant and black workers in the US mm. and how they're treated. And then we have that, we have a similar issue in Mansfield Park. The whole well. slavery uh, aspect mm. of Mansfield yes. Park. But to go back to the children, it must have been a challenging film shoot to have so many kids. They also filmed with uh, babies and, and toddlers. Yes. And I think there was one moment when they were talking about the life of Homer because he was adopted out a couple of times, but that never took for whatever reason. I think as a baby, he never cried, they said. Yeah. And then as a toddler, he was adopted to an abusive family. And they had this moment where there's this toddler, you know, in a crib clearly very distressed and i'm like oh that, that poor little kid like how did they yeah, how yes. did they film that moment yeah i look i suppose um it's a difficult thing to do i know they have very strict rules around how they're allowed to do things and what they do and how they do them so obviously 
you know, the illusion of film probably played a role there. I know they swap kids out quite a lot when they're babies, so they often mm -hmm. um, use twins so they can swap the babies out so they're not on set for too long. If you ever watch the amazing uh, TV series called The Rehearsal, with I think Nathan Feidler um, in terms of swapping out babies because because of the the rules. I mean that's just so hilarious. I, I recommend that to everybody listening. Go and watch the rehearsal if you haven't seen it before. Okay. It's amazing. Like in terms of filming with children, the director said that he thrives in the undisciplined chaos that filming with children brings. You know, you have all these kids running around, and and he said it creates an improvisational atmosphere that he tries to get his adult actors in. With. So he had previously done a movie called My Life as a Dog, which, which was a Swedish movie, I think, um, where okay. the, the main character is a young boy. I remember watching it on SBS uh, many moons ago. Um, but he found from that movie that he really enjoyed filming with children. And I think he brought a lot of that to this movie. It's a, a movie where you don't notice the children. They don't stand out massively. They're just part of the background. They, so they obviously did a really good job. They give very natural performances, yeah. You don't see There's not any sort of bloopers or anything. They obviously worked pretty hard to get the... Talking about My Life as a Dog, which was the direct, one of the director's first movies, do you know what he did before directing that movie? No. He directed pretty much all the ABBA music videos. <laughs> Oh, okay. Oh, right. Well, so he's a bit of a legend then. So he's a bit of a legend. Right. But we'll also see a, a few other directors who make the leap from directing music videos to directing Hollywood pictures. It's one way into the industry, and, and I think there's more of that uh, in the 90s. Yeah, I think, I think it's probably something that still continues to this day. Mm. In terms of Malcolm in the Middle, I mean, Little Fuzzy was, was one of the actors in that. It sounds like you had watched Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah, it's one of those TV series that I, I watched on occasion. I wouldn't call myself a fan or anything, but so Malcolm is the one in the middle, obviously. He's yeah. the middle child, and he's the lead character in that TV series. And uh, the, 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 the young boy who plays Fuzzy is the little kid. And they often, he often gets uh, the worst of everything. Mm. So he gets hand-me-downs. He gets pushed around by his brothers a fair bit. He's quite a good comedic actor. He, he would have been pretty busy at this time as well, to be honest, because I think Malcolm in the Middle was pretty big in this time period. Mm. Well, well, from my point of view, I've never seen Malcolm in the Middle, but I'm a big fan okay. of They Might Be Giants, and they did the theme tune to Malcolm in the Middle and, and all of the incidental I, music. That's about halfway through <laughs> the, uh, well, fifth podcast, and finally <laughs> we get to mention it, They Might Be Giants. Yeah, I really should get one in every week, shouldn't I? But, <laughs> yeah, um, you, should just, you should just work one in anyway. Yeah, and I also loved Breaking Bad, but I'd never seen Malcolm in the Middle, so I didn't have that... Because the the guy who plays Walter White, what's his name? He plays the dad on Malcolm in the yes, Middle. Yes, he's the dad in Malcolm yeah, in the Middle. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So anyway, I also mentioned Michael Caine's acceptance speech for the Best Support Supporting Actor. I watched that on YouTube yesterday. Michael Caine said that the Academy had recently changed the wording uh, when they announce who the award goes to because they used to say, and the winner is... But they changed to saying, and the Oscar goes to. And the point, oh, okay. the point that he was making is that he was in such good company that anybody could have received the Oscar that year. Um, so it, it made sense that they'd changed the wording to, to the Oscar goes to because it could have gone to any of the, the nominees. Yeah, so that was the Cider House Rules. And let's move on to our B movie, which was our optional homework movie. Mansfield Park is a cinematic adaptation of Jane Austen's novel, directed by Patricia Rosamer, which offers a fresh take on Austen's tale of morality, society, and the search for identity. 
The story centers on Fanny Price, a young woman from a poor family who is sent to live with her wealthy relatives at Mansfield Park. Unlike typical heroines of her era, Fanny is intelligent, perceptive and morally steadfast, which sets her apart in a world where status and wealth often overshadow virtue. As she navigates the complex social hierarchies of the time, she observes the intrigues and romances of those around her while developing her own quiet love for her cousin, Edmund. The film explores themes of class disparity, slavery and gender, challenging traditional societal norms through Fanny's growth into a woman who asserts her moral compass and independence, all while facing the challenges of her heart and social position. So Craig, what did you think of Mansfield Park? This movie is our first female director and our first screenplay yeah. by a woman as well. Interesting. Uh, and first book by a woman. So obviously it's based on Jane Austen. Patricia Rosimer wrote the screenplay and directed the movie. This is not faithful to Mansfield Park the Mott in the novel, so it was quite controversial when it came out because it's actually more faithful to Jane Austen herself. Mm. It's uh, intended to be more of a life story of Jane Austen, in a sense, mm. based around the story of Mansfield Park. More of the story is about Jane Austen than it is about mm. Mansfield Park itself. When you see Fanny Price, read Jane Austen yes. herself. Edmund Bertrand is very much like Jane's brother in real life. He's more closely aligned to that character as Jane portrayed mm. him in her writings. Henry Crawford is very similar to Jane's sweetheart in real life, who she also did exactly the same thing as this happens in the movie. <sighs> so in Mansfield Park, she never actually accepts Henry Crawford. But in real life, she had a, an affair of the heart, shall we say, mm. where, where she accepts uh, Henry Crawford's character and then rejects him. The oh, next God, day. that was so annoying. So... That was so annoying. <laughs> So my wife um, and I were watching it and we just both groaned at that moment. I mean, far out. um, I guess because I've watched quite a lot of Jane Austen's stuff, I'm quite used to the female characters being quite changeable and being quite strong in their opinions. Well, but there's Uh, a difference between a strong female character and someone who's indecisive in the way that Fanny is, where she just sort of strings this guy along, sort of gets talked into accepting his proposal and then changes her mind the next day. It's just, it's so annoying. I felt sorry for the poor guy. Um, You've just described pretty much every Jane Austen novel (laughs) ever. To me, that's not Uh, the definition of a strong female character. That's just the definition Um, of... Well, you've you've got to understand the context in which Jane Austen was writing the stories at the world that they were in so the only power that a female had at this time was her attractiveness to men basically so she didn't seem to use that as a a power to benefit herself she just seemed like she was indecisive and not respectful of other people's feelings and stuff like that so so i think that's why we rolled our uh, eyes at it a bit you would find most of Jane Austen's characters are a bit like that. They're a bit uh, strong-willed and a bit different. Um, it's not strong-willed. You know, a... Strong-willed would have been not accepting his proposal in the first place. Which, interestingly, is what happens in the in the actual book. Mm. This is a reflection of Jane Austen's actual life. Right, right. You know, there's a lot of pressure on these women to get married and to marry well. Enormous amounts of pressure. Uh, you can see the pressure that... And, and you can see the pressure in this movie. You know, Sir Thomas is, uh, you know, basically kicks her out of the house because she refuses to go along with the match. Mm. So there's an enormous amount of pressure on these women to do as they are told Mm. by their elders and betters. I really like Jane Austen for her writing about this 
period and writing about it from a female perspective because otherwise all of the history from this period is written by men and mm. you know and from a male perspective what is interesting as well just to continue on that topic is that who would you say is the lead actor in this movie uh, i would say uh edmund oh really okay the, well you kind of spoiled the... <laughs> <laughs> you kind of spoiled yeah, the point that I was point. trying to, to, to meet because Frances O'Connor. Uh, well, Frances O'Connor is the lead, clearly. I, I would say, and she's, and she's, I would say yeah. that Perth's own Frances O'Connor. So, so she comes from uh, where we are at the moment. She went to Curtin Uni and went to yeah. um, Whopper and 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 South I think that. And this was probably her first major role, I think, because I know that she went yeah. on to do Artificial Intelligence later, which was... I, 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 should, I should add, you confused me slightly, Jason, because you said who was the lead actor and my old 50-year-old brain oh, immediately right. thought about differentiating. A male between. actor as opposed to a female actor. But the, yeah. but the point that I was trying to make is she did not receive top billing. On all of the promotional material, it's her face. Mm. I don't know if I can see the poster properly on here. Yeah, um, yeah, it sort of lists her in, in fourth. I'm just looking at the one that's on Internet Movie right, Database. Right, See, on Internet Movie Database, she's the first name. Which makes sense, but not on the poster and not in the film titles. I mean, Johnny Lee Miller is probably a better-known actor, I would imagine. I loved the uh, performance of Hugh Bonneville in... This movie. Yeah. I don't know if you're. Uh, He's so young as well, uh, isn't he? Yes, yeah. And I don't know if you're a uh, Downton Abbey fan, Jason. No, no. I've watched a bit of J Downton Abbey uh, with one of my daughters at one point. You know, it was a massive thing in the two 2010s, early 2010. But in this one, he plays Mr. Rushworth, uh, you know, a dilettante and a fool and, you know, obsessed with his garden and all that kind of mm, stuff. Mm. Um, and I thought he did a brilliant job. I loved the way they uh, dressed him and whatever. I, I, I did have a bit of a chuckle about that. <laughs> he, he plays quite a good comedic role. Interestingly, um, our mate Roger Ebert, who we've uh, mentioned a few times, the uh, the critic's critic, I believe we could almost call him. If you're American. the choice. I think you have to yeah, give, if you're American. You have to give yes, David yes. and Margaret some props as well. Yeah, well, that's that's your job. You're the David <laughs> Margaret fan, so I'll leave that to you. He said, this is an uncommonly intelligent film, smart and amusing too, and anyone who thinks it's not faithful to Austen doesn't know the author but only her plots. The reason why he mentions that is there was a lot of controversy when this movie came out because it's not faithful to the book, unlike all of the other uh, Jane Austen adaptations, because Patricia Rosamar, she said, watch this for what it is, not for what you want it to be. But um, it, I, I liked this movie. Um, a little interesting factoid, because that is my job in life. It is. You remember the doves, Jason? Oh, right. Yes, yes. When the fireworks now, go off. There's nothing more dramatic than flaming doves flying into the sky. Flaming doves, exactly. <laughs> the birds actually survived after the filming was completed. So thank goodness for that. They were looked after for more than eight years afterwards by a local woman because yeah, so uh, she was very worried that they were going to be killed by the gulls that lived in that part of Cornwall, which is where that was shot. So they they, they just released them and left them there. Yeah, I don't Crazy. think they'd get away with that today. No. But they are left behind the flock of doves and this local lady made sure that they survived for yeah. at least eight years afterwards. Because if you've ever seen so Cornish not... seagulls, I mean, they are huge. No, no, they're pretty serious. Mm. Seagulls in, in England are not to be trifled with. I, I thought it was really well done. I it's probably not the most beautifully shot or cinematically no. interesting movie. It is faithful to the period and faithful to the time. It's got some beautiful locations. Mm. I thought the way they did the port 
Portsmouth was really, really good. Yeah, they yeah. did a great job with that. Yeah, watching this on the back of the Cider House rules, you really notice the difference in cinematography. And like I yes. said previously, this movie just really felt flat. They did have some great locations, but they didn't really make the most of what they had. The, the lighting of a lot of the exterior shots was very flat. I think that's true, yes. And I think even... I think the interiors are better, and I think the costumes were excellent. Well, the interiors, I, I would disagree a little bit. I think that the manor house that they used for Mansfield Park, it was very run down, even the parts that they lived in. Mm. There were a lot of interior shots they did where it was just blank walls. You know, yeah, like on the staircase. On the staircase. They, they, and, and the walls yeah. were all blotchy. They weren't... It looked really... Yeah, really run down when they did have uh, interiors that had been uh, decorated it was a very plain very spartan like in terms of the furnishings and things it, certainly nothing as opulent as the other movies and tv shows that you've mentioned so so i think that that no that's true i wondered if that was a deliberate choice though well they, they uh, were supposed to be a wealthy family and and it felt like they were struggling in in some sense i did actually wonder if that wasn't part of the whole story though because he had all of these investments in Antigua in slavery and all that kind mm. of time and at, and at this time in the British world there was a very strong abolitionist movement right so Britain actually got rid of slavery before America and did. and they tried yeah. to in, introduce that into this movie as a plot point but I, I don't think that that worked incredibly well and I'm not sure whether they were trying to liken Fanny's dilemma to slavery or something like that there's a moment when she's standing on a clifftop looking at a ship that's sort of moored offshore and she can hear the yes. she can hear the screams of the slaves yes. that are on board which is of course something that never happened in real life no. because they didn't bring slaves no. to England in that way no it's like that, that was actually another controversial point uh, was that actual scene because that was quite controversial because slaves never actually came but, to but what were uh, they trying to say were they trying to say something about fanny well, i the mean the funny why thing was is that? that it is actually slavery is actually mentioned in the book mm. because the the thomas is a slave owner and fanny you know she does make a comment on slavery in the book because at the time there was this movement for abolition mm. of slavery quite why they decided to have the boat there i'm not really sure i'm probably just to make that plot point it wasn't historically inaccurate, though, because slaves never, ever came anywhere near mm. Britain. They were always shipped to the islands, and um, that was actually one of the things. Like, So what was historically accurate was the fact that there was a comment um, made at one point was, well, you're living off the profits of slavery, yeah. so I don't know why you don't like it, right? That was correct. A lot of this wealth that these people in Jane Austen's movies portray was, in fact, yeah. from the profits of slavery. While people like Fanny could be morally uh, up in arms about slavery, she wouldn't have had that position. Right, right. Yes, I do remember that. In terms of the morality and and making a comment on that issue, I just don't think it was anywhere near as successful as the Cider House rules in in presenting that moral dilemma. And I think it was really just more of an aside. Did you notice the credits at the end, though? No. They had that. The song at the end of the credits was actually a song called Slavery, and there was another song at the very end of the credits, uh, okay. which was by an um, African-American composer. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was mentioned quite a bit, and it did, it did mention at the end of the movie that he sold his holdings in Antigua mm. um, because, you know, his son was very upset about it. Mm. I think the point was fairly strongly made for what was meant to be a period romance. You know, like, I thought it was interesting that they went there. 
like it, as strongly as they did. It it felt more to me like they had the story and then they tacked that on um, rather than mm. it being it fundamental to the story. Park. It is in Mansfield Park, but it's not as strong. Mm. And there is a suggestion in the Mansfield Park novel that one of the reasons why Tom is such a rake is that he is very upset by what he sees when he goes out to Antigua with his father. Yes, and his father, and 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 you can see that his father, in the father character, so Tom's character, is not a happy character either. I think no, he's no. probably not terribly happy about the whole thing either. He's there's a bit, there's a fair bit of guilt about what's happened. Yeah, there after yeah, and Fanny discovers the sketchbook, and, the, and I think that's the moment yes. where you sort of, you know, you get presented with these images that they are seeing. I kind of felt that this was a bit of a mess of a movie in some ways. There were two things that the director did, which I just thought were a bit ridiculous. One is that Fanny breaks the fourth wall. She speaks directly to the camera. And I don't think it's really done in a way that contributes to the story that she's trying to tell or anything like that. I think it's a little bit like, well, we'll do this modern Ferris Bueller almost uh, talking Mm. directly to the audience. I, I don't think that worked. It's actually pretty common in Jane Austen productions. Yeah. The characters often speak to the audience directly. Did um, not like Because it. Jane Austen does it in her books, actually. It takes you out of the movie. And it's and it, okay. it's sort of reminding you that you're watching a movie and then they don't really take advantage of it. They don't. I think a Jane Austen fan would disagree with you because they kind of like that. Yeah, well, <laughs> so, it, it just shows yeah, you the difference yeah. between being a fan and being a critic, I suppose. But the other thing that I really didn't like is this freeze frame thing they did at the end. They have a little bit of narration about what happens next. Yes. And they show a scene and all the characters freeze as though it's it's a photograph, but they it's not a photograph. They're just holding still and then they start moving again. And that was just yeah. so ridiculous. <laughs> I went into this expecting to like it more than I actually did because obviously okay. you go into it, you look at what the critics have been saying, you look at the Rotten Tomatoes uh, review score. I do like uh, Frances O'Connor. I'd, I had seen her and Brendan Fraser in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof in London back in 2001. Yep. I really liked her yep. as a performer. I went into this expecting to like it, did not like it. So many mm. of the scenes just rubbed me the wrong way for some reason. The wrong way. And in in the end, in terms of all the movies we've watched so far, I think it's been 11 now. Is that right? Yes. This would be at the bottom in terms of my ratings. If if I was to sort them best to worst, I'm afraid that this would currently be in the bottom position, which I was not expecting to be. No, I would still have Ninth Gate probably in my last. Yeah, I I turned around on Ninth Gate after watching it a second time and and watching it with a different context. Yeah. Like we spoke about last week. Both American movie for me and Ninth Gate from last week, I and uh, Tarzan would probably be the one that was on the bottom Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. Rotten Tomatoes disagrees with you, Jace, because it gives this movie a higher score than Cider Harsh Rules. This movie's a little bit like popcorn for me. Mm. It's a comfort food, right? You sit down with a good Jade Oster movie, you feel comfortable, you enjoy the experience. You move on with your life. You end up yeah. happy. I did feel like saying to you, and I'm, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. <laughs> I, I did feel like I was getting I was getting in touch with my feminine side this week. Both of these movies, I think, are probably aimed at the female side of the world rather than the male side of the world, I suspect. And look, and I've come to enjoy them because I've watched so many of them. So, mm. yeah. Well, I'd, I had to force myself to finish watching this one. I wouldn't say I really enjoyed watching this movie. I was watching it more with a critical eye, I think, because I did get pulled out of the story a bit by some of these choices that the director made. 
I think for me this was an easy watch because again it's that comfort and and also but that's fair enough we're we're allowed to disagree I think and also the mind you Roger Ebert agrees with me so I'm well <laughs> I'm I'd like to that. see if some of these reviewers change their minds after 25 years you know some of, yeah. some of these movies don't age as well as others I think the last thing Craig they were cousins <laughs> oh that's very common in these things <laughs> again oh, clearly you're 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 just showing your uh, lack of knowledge of jade austen yeah, to, well, <laughs> to the world here <laughs> I, I will wear that badge proudly um that's the fact that i don't know very much jane austen but anyway that was mansfield park and i think now it's that time of the podcast where we well i, I was going to mention one other small thing oh what I was could, that Jason. yes i managed to get a copy of the book the best movie year ever by your mate Brian Raftery and um, I've started reading it and it's actually quite informative it's a great book um, though it doesn't it? have a lot to, yeah he doesn't have a lot to say about cider house rules which I was disappointed about mm. I haven't actually looked up Mansfield Park but uh anyway you go on yes well I was going to say it is that time in the podcast where we cross live to the next movie night to find out what we'll be watching during the week and what we'll be talking about this time next week. So let's cut live for the rolling of the bingo ball. Over to you, future Jason. Hello, Jason from the past. Hello, Jason from the past. And here we are live at the movie night and we're about to spin the bingo ball, mix it up well this, this time. We're hoping for a single digit number this week. A number has come out and it's number 13. Not bad, not bad. And number 13 is The Straight Story. It's a David Lynch film, exactly right. What did I say, David Lynch? This morning you fall and you can't get off the floor. That's your hips, Alvin. And you're going to have to use a walker now to get around. No walker. I love a lightning storm. Me too, Dad. A cloud. I had a... a stroke. Rose, darling, I'm gonna go back on the road, and I, I've gotta make this trip on my own. I've gotta go see Lyle. I know you understand. Alvin, you're gonna get blown off the right off the road. That's what I'm afraid. Mount Zion, Wisconsin? Why didn't you just take your car? I don't have a driver's license. That's 60 more miles of hills. That's across the Mississippi. I'm having a little engine trouble. <laughs> you know, uh, I'd be happy to drive you the rest of the way to Mount Zion. I still want to finish this the way I started. And this trip is a hard swallow for my pride. I just hope I'm not too late. You've got two brothers that haven't spoken in 10 years. I want to make peace. I want to sit with him, look up at the stars, like we used to do so long ago. Brothers and brothers. And we've paired it up with Strange Planet. I don't even remember that movie, Strange Planet. Sex is all that remains, and you have to take it when you can, wherever you can, and whichever way you can. I just think somewhere out there there are three boys who are just right for us. Oh, dream on, honey. In the last year, 
of the last century. Relationships just aren't worth the grief. You're a lousy bastard! I will not sulk about not having a boyfriend. Get that in my life! Six perfect strangers have one year to get their lives together. It's a generation that's answered every question in every women's magazine known to man before they've turned 16. All I need you guys to do is just give me an in. Oh, here he is. Neil. Working today? Oh, holy shit! If I can't pay for the damage, could I at least take it to lunch? I've been thinking about this quite a lot. Handbags are symbolic of women's sexuality, or more precisely, their vagina. We're in an episode of the Hi, Dad. Strange Planet, the new film from the creators of Love and Other Catastrophes. And there you go. They are the two movies we'll be discussing on next week's episode. So that wraps it up for today. Um, any final words, Craig? Uh, looking forward to next week as always. Really enjoying the whole process of going through these movies and, and watching them. Uh, yeah, looking forward to it. I really like the element of randomness with the movie nights. Mm. We never quite know what we're going to watch. I'm always a little bit nervous that one of the really controversial movies will pop out, but so far it's been good. So we'll see you all on next week's episode and we'll leave the final word to Margaret and David. So until next week, goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. John Irving's novels have not always been turned into fine films, but he adapted the Cider House rules for the screen himself. So we know we have the author's approved version. Swedish director Lasse Hallström has created a beautiful but not especially memorable film from this sprawling material. As a result, the film seems a touch ponderous, and given that it deals with the tricky subject of abortion, it seems rather sanitised. A decent, rather stolid literary adaptation, Margaret. Yes, it's strange, isn't it? Because, I mean, Lassie Hallstrom, My Life as a Dog, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, you know, were both edgy films, and somehow or other it seems squishily dealt with. I wonder why. It's a narrative rather than a drama. And you also get a feeling that somewhere along the line they wanted to appeal to a wide audience so they didn't want to offend too many people. It's a reasonable film, three stars. Yeah, and Kane is wonderful, three and a half from me.